You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 440, the big quiz. Ooh, a Valentine's special. News sources through the ages and waking up with Billie Eilish. That's all coming up right after Stevie Wonder and I was made to love her. with his mother and recorded when he was... <laughs> no, it's was. unusual. <laughs> not, not many top 40 songs you can say that about. Written with his mother. Uh, recorded when he was 16 years old, which is astonishing. Um, recorded uh, 16 years old. Um, that's the last in our short run of Motown bangers to open the podcast. Also, of course, a great pick for Valentine's Day, which will make great sense if you're listening to this in the week. We record it. Absolutely. Less so listening in july 2024 <laughs> we recorded this on valentine in, in, in valentine's week guys remember this when you listen yes uh, number five in the uk number two on the billboard hot 100 in the summer of 1967 stevie wonder and i was made to love her that's a glorious choice well done the only other parallel of songs featuring parents and children i can think of is frank and nancy sinatra's du- duet of something stupid i can't think of anything else that features that parents was a weird one though time. wasn't it because it was like Bizarre. a love song 
and it was but, yeah, farther no, water, a bit odd. Very do, strange. Do you know what? Keep. I said that was number two. Uh, it reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100 in its summer of '67. Keeping it off number one um, in the states was The Doors, Light My Fire. Wow. So gosh, number one. Fair Stevie, enough, Wonder, yeah. Stevie Wonder at number two, and The Beatles' All You Need Is Love was at number three now, on its way to the top. That is what I call a top three. That's All incredible, isn't it? Welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 440. I'm Terence Stackham. And now, how women dress has been in the news here in the UK this week. So let's check. She <laughs> is appropriately attired. No, no shoulders on view. Let's hope it's Juliet Harris. I, I am in pyjamas, which I consider to be entirely appropriate, personally. So, uh, so, so yes. And just to, just to enlarge upon Terence's excellent mm. point, I'm, uh, I'm just going to mention sort of people that are either away from the UK or just haven't been following this. And why would you? Tracy Brabin, MP, the the excellent MP for uh, for Batley in Spain, was uh, speaking in the debate in the House of the Commons uh, Parliament from the from the in the House of Commons from the dispatch box, I think. Yes. And she was wearing a dress that was black and was off one shoulder. And she received a lot of um, a lot of comment online for this. She did a particularly great tweet setting out, no, I'm not on my way out. No, I'm not a slacker, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And other things that are too too unsafe. Yes. It was ex- what an extraordinary reaction. I know, but but she has gone on to do to, to sort of have the have the last laugh by putting it on eBay for sale yeah. to yeah. raise money for Girl Guiding UK. Which is the, the the I don't know if they have do they have girl guides in the US I'm not sure but anyway so it's a young people sort of organisation um that tries to help build up young people's confidence and, and skills and that sort of thing and so she she said that she donate the money to them to help young girls with their self esteem and self image and uh, as as at the time of discussion I think the bids were at seven grand when I looked earlier oh, on good. so yeah. so, yeah. so respect to good Tracy comes Graven, out oh absolutely bad. yes it was it was exactly despite rumours to the contrary she chose her to be a class act so uh, good for her. Well, let us turn our attention now to our opening feature, the huge quiz. The, the, uh, the ginormous, gigantic, uh, visible from space quiz, I believe it's all set now. More thrilling than any quiz you might mention. More suspense-filled than who wants to be a millionaire. And that um, is pretty suspense-filled. Yeah. May I introduce our contestants? They are you, the listener, and you, the Juliet Harris. Hello. Yes, that's me still. You have to identify uh, songs on a common theme, and mm. you get one point for each aspect of the theme and uh, that you identify, and a bonus point for spotting the artist involved. So mm. it's it's Valentine's Day, as we say, in the week we record this in February 2020. So the theme is uh, Valentine's and romance related um so five snippets from five songs in just over 30 seconds right let me get my pen Ha <laughs> 
I consider you to be the fourth member of that <laughs> band, Terence. Well, now let's see how you get on. I don't know if that's proving any difficulties for you this week, but um, let's start with number one, where the Marseille uh, introduced the quiz this week. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was almost upstanding. Um, I thank you for that. Um, I must say thank you for not picking any exceptionally soppy, syrupy ballads because <laughs> I absolutely loathe love songs as a joke. The lady to, in red. Oh, if, you had to, if you had to give my, my least favourite genre it is the love song as a genre or the love ballad as a genre which therefore means that my least favourite three hours of the week was when I worked in Marks and Spencers and we had the radio on in the storeroom we had to listen to Steve Wright's Sunday oh, love Sunday songs love song. when they when they get people on Saturday kitchen type programmes and ask them for their food heaven and their food hell yeah. that would be my music hell three hours of love song ballad so thank you for not doing that okay, uh, rant good. over and go back to what you've actually asked me to do yeah, um, the first song which is fair enough really mm. the first song is all you need is love by the fabulous beefy boys two points uh the next one is my guy by mary wells i believe what a great oh, tune that is yes, a swinging is. tune uh, to match my guy we've got my girl and i believe that is the temptations superb see, see a little bit of equality there no discrimination my Absolutely. guy my girl yes indeed choose um, your own path you know yeah this is exactly well, well done sir t mm. as always um mm. and then the fourth one and oh. i think this is a, this is a spectacularly underrated record Me mostly too. for its production which is by mark spike stent who was also producing bjork around this time and i think it shows from that um that is two begun one by the spice girls yes i love that too i, I mean i'm not being not being arch in any way but that to become one is one of my favorite singles ever as you say so beautifully produced it's brilliant real sort of sensuality in it and a magnificent video i, it, I love it's, that it's track. great i mean it's genuinely i think quite a lot of the Spice Girls music because somewhat unexpectedly genuinely stood the, the taste of uh, the test of time and actually it was very interesting I read a book years ago it might have been called Wannabe but I can't quite remember it was by David Sinclair who was um, chief critic of rock critic of the times for a while I think and he um he wrote this book about the Spice Girls, that's sort of the definitive work about them, really. And it's a really good book. It's worth reading. And um, he makes the point towards the end, and this would have been published sort of 2004, maybe 2005. That right? I think I remember reading it in 2006, and it had been out a little while, in which, at which point the Spice Girls stock was really very low, kind of critically and commercially. And he made the, the somewhat controversial argument at the time that their music would genuinely stand the test of time. Mm. And that the, the young women that listened to it as young women would still love that music when they got older and that he felt that their pop music could be comparable to Aberyn standing the test of time and here we are sort of 20 years on from there more than that nearly are we where are we yeah we are sort of 20 25 years on from their from their first singles and they sold all those shows they, they sold lots of tickets to people to go and see them at Wembley and it really they really do their music still I think sounds all right most of it I couldn't agree more I've got a great deal of time for them but I've said a few times over the years my test is always that if you hear something coming on the radio or a spotify playlist sort of unexpectedly and you immediately reach for the volume to turn it up yes that's, that's my guide and you know with the spice girls most of their singles that would be my first reaction let's whack that right up and sing yeah, along absolutely there. yeah I, ha I have their greatest hits on a picture disc vinyl which makes mm -hmm. it very very difficult to dj with but it was mm -hmm. the only version i could find at the time and i have to say i have it in my box because if i am playing 
meditate at night in a place where younger people hang out mm. even sort of 20 year olds will come up to me and say have you got any spice girls they get requested a lot more than you than you'd imagine actually particularly if it's a group of women who are out on the lash all they want to hear is the spice girls and madonna usually now you left us hanging you've got eight out of ten yes. i rather suspect you're gonna you're gonna achieve uh, well, that, the maximum to, here. Your, to your customary beautiful joining in i think that's what swung it yeah. yeah absolutely it's it's the tell what swung it yeah. um it is the bgs and how deep is your love 10 out of 10 for uh, julia harris unexpectedly again romantic who knows <laughs> who knows do you know it's rather strange i was thinking when we were listening to those and i was thinking the genre of love songs, particularly love songs that aren't love songs. You were saying earlier about how you don't, you know, like uh, sort of love songs. How I wonder how many couples have uh, the police's "Every Breath You Take" as their wedding song when it's yes, actually it's quite a stalking, sinister. Isn't it? it's yeah, stalking. absolutely. Yeah, it's it's, and um, I always like the fact that. Um, I knew someone that walked down the aisle to um, Chasing Cars by Snow Patrol once, which mm. I found to be a very, it always gets used as kind of for uplifting things on pop idol shows, doesn't it? Because it's got mm. like a large string section. But yeah, my friend walked down the aisle to that. And it's about, um, I think it's about someone who's who's not terribly happy in their relationship. Mm. So yeah, like you say, there are lots of, um, there are lots of, uh, lots of songs. I also find it interesting that often songs are equally requested for weddings and funerals, which you'd think they'd be very different sort of happiness <laughs> level events. Yeah, Angels by Robbie Williams. I've heard that played at weddings and funerals. <laughs> 10 cc's, I'm not in love. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, Tammy Wynette, Stand By Your Man, you know, being treated badly <laughs> and putting up with it. It's, it's almost as bad as saying, oh, I'd like Jolene at my wedding, please. That would be really nice. And <laughs> um, coming next, sources for news. How it has changed through the years. Um, that's right after, from 1965, the
Now, I'm a huge fan of 60s and 50s girl groups generally, and I play a lot of Motown when I'm out and about. And I have to say, I think the Velvetettes are a little bit overlooked when it comes to a sort of female girl groups. Everyone sort of hears, hears the Supremes and the Shangri-Las and uh, even the Marvelettes and uh, and Martha William, sorry, Martha, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. Mm. They all seem to get a, a good hearing and the Ronettes and bands like that. But you never hear the Velvetettes play very much. I recently bought a best of of theirs on CD and they've got so many great songs. They are genuinely really brilliant. I think they're probably best remembered for Needle in a Haystack, I think. That's the only song of theirs that seems to get any kind of cut through. But I think this is brilliant. And I first found this on such a peculiar way to get into such an important genre of music. But... I really got into Motown and Northern Soul and that sort of thing. As a result, there was a, 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 a little watch and I think little remembered series on Channel 4 in the early noughties called No Angels that was set. It was it was set it was four women that were nurses that shared a house. Mm-hmm. And it was on for a couple of series, I think. But peculiarly, although it was set very much in modern times, the soundtrack was entirely made up of Motown and particularly 60s groups and stuff mm-hmm. like um, the, the less fated songs like the Velvetettes and the Marvelettes. And, uh, and uh, they did have Heatwave on it, I think. But mm-hmm. it didn't have... It didn't have the most obvious songs in it, and it was they did they ended up doing I think more volumes of the soundtrack than they did series because it was really really popular. So weirdly, that's where I first came across um, a bird in the hand by the uh, by the Velvetettes. I thought that was a great record. And in a link to our first track, uh, Stevie Wonder played on their first two singles when he was twelve years old. Ah, it's little Stevie Wonder. Little yes, Stevie Wonder. Work. In the nineteen um, seventies and eighties, it felt like. Everyone knew everyone else in the media, especially Mm. the entertainment music spheres and uh, particularly true in London and in Soho, where everybody seemed to hang around the same handful of pubs. And there were some very strange characters I got to know Mm. around this time. I'm going to tell you about a couple of them. I'll tell you about one first and another one a bit later. Um, None was stranger than a chap called Benjamin Pell, who was known as Benji the Bin Man in media circles. Right. And Benji was, he is and and still is, um, he's still with us, uh, a strange eccentric sort of uh, bloke with a very excitable manner. He used to make his living by the simple strategy of going through the bins at famous people's houses Mm. and finding out personal details of the lives of celebrities and selling them to the newspapers. This was obviously in the pre-internet era. This is uh, stories used to be sourced in this sort of way. Now they get it all off news wires and they just borrow stuff Mm. off Twitter and Facebook and so on uh, and nick it from other newspapers. But in the late eighties and nineties, um, Benjamin Pell, Benji the Bin Man, was probably responsible for breaking more stories into the newspapers than many Fleet Street journalists and themselves. And it was mm. Benji, Benji the Bin Man who led to the fallout, indeed, um, the ending of the business relationship between Elton John and his manager, John Reed. Mm. Um, Pell went through the bins at um, John Reed's offices, uh, Rocket Records, and found all sorts of stuff, including Elton's discarded bank statements, and sold them in um, it, it, for money to Piers, for much money, for, to Piers Morgan at the Daily Mirror. And this led 
to Elton and John Reed's split and estrangement. And uh, but yeah, still with us. I bumped into him about two or three years ago at cricket at Lords. Uh, right. Hell. He's now, he's, <laughs> this now, is how rock stars age, I'm assuming. Yeah, he's yes. now retired from his dustbin antics. But in a sort of strange, sort of twist, rather like John Profumo, he sort of saw the error of his ways, and he's now um, volunteering. He's working as a sort of legal advisor for Grenfell survivors. So oh, it's gosh. really from one extreme to the other. Yeah, that is superb. I, I hats off to him. It's really bin, odd, isn't it? How the journeys the bin, that people man. can go. Absolutely, yes. Jules, do you have any? Do you have any more confidence in the media in the modern era compa- compared to those pre-Leveson uh, bin diving days? Mm, well, it's it's difficult, isn't it? I mean. I I mean, so so we're living in this world of fake news now, I think, or rather we're living in, not a world of fake news, but we're living in, 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 in a world where social media has completely changed the game. You mentioned it in your sort of intro, the, the, this idea that Twitter has become this kind of yeah. ground, harvest ground for stories. And of course, anybody can put anything on Twitter. You don't have to source it. You don't have to reference it. So I think that that is eroding the standard of our news, I think, because then, of course, it means that it's easily disproved. And then people go, and then then people with 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 the motives which mean that they do not wish to be scrutinised can then go, oh well, you can't trust anything in the media, can you? And therefore are not scrutinised. So so we're living in a world where we're trying to deal with these challenges, but it's but but the world of social media means that journalism doesn't 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 seem to pay anymore and, and, and newspapers struggling to make revenues I, I noticed a story just as we were just as we were coming uh, quote unquote on air that says that the uh, the Sunday the Sunday Mirror and the people are to fall under the Daily Mirror's editor with jobs at risk so it seems that it seems we seem to be sort of having difficulty with that here which then means if we're not going to have the print media be and the tabloid media being as dominant maybe there's some plus sides to that I don't know given some of their behavior as you say but we're trying to look at ways now how to rebuild trust in a landscape of fake news in this article that I read I was somewhat hinted in my understanding of it because the first word of the headline was blockchain and I decided a very long time ago that I don't really understand the blockchain uh, so so I did my best to read this bearing that in mind um, so the New York Times is doing something here to uh, to see they say there and I think this is a fair point there is a gap between the vast amount of information news organizations possess about the media they publish and the subset of that information to which their users have ready access into that gap trolls and bad actors have established many tools of misleading people so um so they're trying to find a way so blockchain they say this is helping people like me who wander who wander through the world going what is blockchain mm-hmm. uh, blockchain well, it sort of helps and doesn't this really is a piece of technology. OK, that's good. I understand that. That enables you to trust something more than you ordinarily would do. I mean, that that I mean, a padlock helps me to trust things more than I ordinarily. I find this very strange. But basically what they're again, this, a lot of this, there seems to be an awful lot of what 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 you might refer to as word vomit on this sort of thing. And I'm I'm struggling to get my head around this. But what they're saying is. They're trying to find a way of um, setting out, basically giving the reader more information. So rather than a journalist writing the story, they're trying to find a way that they can prove that almost like sort of build your own airfix plane. They're trying to give instead of if someone giving me their idea of an airfix plane, I think they're talking about the idea that I get more of the source material. I get the Mm. wings and the fuselage and whatnot so I can then glue it together and make, make my own plane. I mean, 
I don't have time to make my own plane or words <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to the news. And uh, rather than kind of getting me more involved in it, I just want to be able to rely upon news sources. I think that 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 news journalism and broadcast journalism is a, an investigative journalism are really important things to be healthy and to be trustworthy in order for our society to thrive. And I think we're we're struggling through a lack of that at the moment in all sorts of different directions. I would much rather that. If anything, legislation, you know me, I'm, a, I'm an old socialist interventionist. I would I would much rather that there would be some sort of legislation or framework, some sort of robust framework that means that news is reliable rather than necessarily me having to do this myself. Because I think that, that you know, it's, it's, it's a noble profession, actually, and I think it should pay. Yes, I, I, I don't have a great deal more insight into blockchain, but the way I've understood <laughs> and, it, which it, is a bit of a pity because I, I don't know anything as we should learn, but still. It, you know how, like, if you Ill- illegally download music uh, from a file sharing site, it's called BitTorrents, and you get yes. loads of different bits coming in, like Lego bricks, and when they all come together, then you've got the whole. Yeah, I think blockchain in that sense in terms of news and in the prevention of fake news and people being able to alter stories is that different components of the story will be held in different places Mm. to put it simplistically and so that if somebody tries to alter a news story or uh, come up with a fake version of a story um, they can't do so because the bits are spread all around in different places. Oh I see, oh that's quite interesting and that that does kind of make sense doesn't it? Now, I uh, when I was thinking about um, Benji the Bin Man earlier today, um, and the London media scene, it was filled with these sort of characters twenty or thirty years ago. As I said earlier, before the internet age changed everything, really. And one of the strangest nights in my life was it. It, it started attending some really dull party in Weybridge back in the nineteen ninety mm. nineteen ninety seven, I think. Um, but, yeah, there was this rather boorish writer I'd met a few times there. He's no longer with us, so I can say that. His name was <laughs> Noel Botham, as in um, the cricketer Botham. Noel Botham. And to oh, say right. he liked drink, okay. he was well known around Fleet Street, mm. hanging around sort of Soho pubs and everything. He liked to drink. Um, you know, to say he liked to drink, it would be really um, something of an understatement. Yes. And anyway, the evening was meandering along and Noel Botham had had a few and talk turned <laughs> to the funeral he was going to attend a few days later of his friend, Huey Green, the TV presenter. Oh, yes. OK, yes. Anyway, out of nowhere at this party, Noel Botham suddenly started telling everyone that he knew for certain, and this was totally unknown at the time, that Huey Green was the real father of... Of Paulie Yates. Ah, uh, yes, I thought you were going to go on to say mm-hmm. this. Yeah, well, you know, people outside the UK. She was then one of the most famous women on British TV through her hosting of, of, of TV shows and her relationships first with Bob Geldof and then with Michael Hutchins mm. of NXS. And we all thought, oh, this was typical Botham. It was just a drunk man rambling. But then, <laughs> that's the news now, apparently. Yeah, but then a few days later. Um, literally just a handful of days later, a more sober Noel Botham um, announced the same news to mourners at Huey Green's funeral, and he sold the story for a hundred grand, wow. uh, which is a lot of money in '97, still is now, isn't it? And it, mm. but the thing is, it caused untold pain and distress to Paulie Yates and her well, mother. Well, I think I think it was the beginning of a sequence of events uh, that invo- resulted in her death. I'm afraid to say, well, and I speak as someone who knows knew 
of her because towards the end of her life, her and her children lived in Hastings. Oh, that's right. Yes. Well, her mother unfortunately denied that this was, you know, there was any credibility to this story. Mm. And so Paulie Yates then went and got a DNA test and it proved that um, her, who she thought was her father, Jesse Yates, wasn't her father and that Huey Green was. And I don't think Paulie Yates and her mother ever spoke again um, before she died. But um, there was another twist to this, actually, nothing to do with Noel Botham, was that Huey Huey Green, not obviously we didn't know this at the time, but mm. Huey Green got um, Paulie Yates's not real father Jess Yates sacked from ITV by revealing um, to a newspaper that Yates had had an affair with what was called at the time a showgirl. Oh um, gosh, yes. Incredible. Um, these were the days of extraordinary stories arriving into newspapers as, as exclusives in in that in the most peculiar of ways. Mm, it's strange, isn't it? It's it's it, whereas the only equivalent I suppose I can think of in terms of how I used to consume some of my celebrity news when I was younger, I subscribed to an email called Pop Bitch. No, oh, yes. Now I, I haven't I haven't subscribed to this for years, and I will always I was I remember reading a, a reading a story, and I will always remember the fact that it effectively just started off. I think it was a woman writing it in her lunch break, I think, or something. It was it was a sort of a slightly slightly bored woman that worked in PR or something that started off from sort of you know scribbling it away herself, and at one point it employed something like 10 people or something ridiculous it became it became a really big thing and like you they used to say you used to have things that you'd think oh you know that's ridiculous celebrity gossip why would david beckham have an affair honestly they're making this up it's nonsense six and a half months later it's then that the rebecca Lou story broke mm. so so like you say it's it's it's, it's funny isn't it that, that they used to have the um the blind item so that was the kind of the the way that they would that they would the whole just the whole website was just designed to to uh to thwart the age of the super injunction i think and it was always quite there was a grim pleasure to be having their blind items which was they were trying to describe the subject of the item without actually saying their name so they would say which raunchy rock star or there'd usually be some sort of pun on the on the kind of the uh, on, on something that like a song they'd done so it was almost like cryptic crossword clues for gossips really it was it was quite entertaining but I I just like you like you say I, I'm almost the blockchain thing shows to me that I'm almost out of touch with how people consume their news now. But one one sort of typically typically kind of old school sort of old school meets new school and and I think illustrates my point nicely for the for the real need for us still to have a media that scrutinises is the extraordinary scenes in number ten last week where um where and and this is what's so frightening that it was denied there were various lobby journalists so in the uk we have something mm. called the lobby which is basically that that each paper and major news organization will have one or in some cases several journalists that that have the part or, or usually it's one who has the lobby pass for each organization which is that you're given a you're given a lobby pass and that gives you access to um certain briefings usually most of the briefings by the government of the day that's the point so so you know you'll have matt chorley is that is the times lobby correspondent and, and various different people and on this particular day 
they were told that there was the, the government announcement of this was that there was going to be a specialist briefing and that you know several journalists were pulled aside and they were going to they were going to have a specialist briefing what happened was and one of the people that was there described it as a bit like trying to be picked for sports at school do you remember that when people mm. would pick teams and you'd stand they stood all of the journalists in a row and then they called out certain journalist names and they were allowed to step onto one side of the carpet i cannot believe i'm saying this about a serving government but anyway that happened and then the other lot had to stay behind the line of the carpet where the carpet changed and the ones that made it over the carpet were allowed to go into the lobby briefing at which point it was it was sort of realized that most of the people that were allowed in with the exception of the guardian were um were more right-leaning papers and mm, most of the left yeah, yeah most of the left-leaning organizations were sort of were, were left behind now it's not unusual that that governments favor certain journalists and certain publications but for it to be for it to be so done so obviously done so so deliberately and so if you are the lobby journalist you have access that's you know you the government can't make the rules as to who is the lobby journalist and who gets access and actually fortunately i think in the circumstances uh, um, the journalists that were picked, including people like Robert Peston from ITV, Laura Coonsberg from the BBC, and big names, their political editors, walked out in protest. And all of the journalists that had been picked walked out in protest. So fortunately, this was this was this was this was uh, publicised. But I find this very troubling, particularly as the government line was, oh, it was a specialist briefing. And to which everybody who was picked as a quote unquote specialist went, well, I'm a political editor. I'm not a specialist or a technical specialist on aspects of trade and Brexit. I'm just, you know, the political person. So it's, it seems like there are people that are trying, not only is the way that we consume news changing, there are people that are trying to mess with the existing structures and existing safeguards of how we, uh, how we consume news are possibly nefarious ends, I think. I think it's absolutely dreadful. The, the sort of overt censorship of specific news um, organisations or papers and, and, as you say, the sort of lining up and saying you're in, you're out is a really sinister turn. It is. And I it's hope nasty. that uh, uh, they all stand together and that's quickly quashed before that yes, becomes the norm. Mm. Absolutely. Coming next, I'll be asking Juliet impertinent questions <laughs> as always yes <laughs> about her um, morning routine when she wakes up um, <laughs> yeah you'll be lucky she yeah, starts in a ditch then goes from there usually <laughs> that's right after this gorgeous cover uh, another valentine winner from Todd Rundgren Like a home. 
now and then, Todd Rundgren, he's, he's zoomed off into an unexpected direction. Uh, sometimes uh, the, that direction, what he does, it, it doesn't work. Sometimes they do in mm. spectacular fashion, confirming his, confirming his genius. Um, back in 1997, his record company, they, they asked Todd to produce an album that was essentially new versions of his hit singles. And uh, Todd being Todd thought that was quite a boring idea. So he recorded Absolutely. the songs in a sort of psychedelic bossa nova lounge music style (laughs) which which, you know endears Todd to me as well even though he's technically yours (laughs) and um yeah well as a bonus um added in this glorious version of Marvin Gaye's hit single from 1976 from the album with a twist Todd Rundgren and I want you I thought that was great. I, that was unexpectedly brilliant. To think that you used you used to tease me for picking chintzy instrumentals <laughs> at the end at the, the end of chintzy records. And actually, I I like a bit of bossa nova. I know it's it's unfairly maligned as easy listening sometimes, but I thought that was great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now, now, Jules, in order to to mm. gain some clarity, I need to ask you a rather personal question. How do you wake up in the morning? Do you set an alarm on your phone or do you have an alarm clock that plays you PJ Harvey songs at (laughs) 7am? What's your routine? Well, my routine is, well, I don't really wake up in a ditch well not not unusual sometimes (laughs) anyway. It it, it partly differs on whether I'm here or whether I'm there, there being my, uh, my house house but i am the sort of person that um that needs something to wake them up by and large um i i need i need i can't wake up naturally and actually for rather sort of tedious reasons i'm quite often on medication to help me sleep as part of a long-term condition which means that i really do need something to wake me up so um so i am so i usually at the moment i favor my mobile telephone alarm which has a various uh, various kind of different jaunty pre-prepared tunes you can pick. So not not recording artiste music, but, oh, you know, right. the various yeah, different yeah. iphone versions, which always fill my heart with doom now because it means I've got to get up. So I don't find those to be particularly cheerful tunes because of, you know, cognitive dissonance and all that. But I use an alarm to wake me up. And then once I am awake, usually, and I've been able to get out of bed, which sometimes is easier than others, I am... I like to pop my radio on so i don't have a clock radio but i do have a radio near my bed which i like to put on and listen to six music usually it seems that a university in australia has been undertaking extensive research into finding out if there's a link to how we wake up with our mood for the rest of the morning which is searingly obvious to Mm -hmm. me but there we are now they suggest melodic music might improve levels of alertness Mm -hmm. but beeping or chiming alarms which sounds like you wake up to could lead to negative stressful starts to the day i'm not sure i could bear some uh, bouncy music waking me up each day but (laughs) but you're the guardian jules it's been suggesting tunes to get us going in the morning it has which is I, I quite am enjoying. I'm enjoying your foray into my guardian. I must admit, I am. So this is a particularly enjoyable piece. But a bizarre. So the picture that that illustrates it is a sort of a composite of all the things that have, that have been sort of recommended. And it is a. It's a dizzying mix. I never thought I'd see <laughs> these five things in the same place. It's the be- left to right. The Beach Boys. Um, fair enough. I can see. I can see how that might work. Um, it's taken me years to pronounce this woman's name. But I believe it's Billie Eilish, isn't it? Correct, uh, the, yeah. the American singer who um, I can never take seriously ever since a rather brilliant journalist friend of mine described her as the ultimate music for seventeen-year-old girls, even more so than Block Capitals of the Bangles. 
<laughs> so I've never been quite since capable of taking Billie Eilish or the Bangles seriously ever since. Um, Enya, which I would not have put with those two artists, yeah. Kelly Jones from the Stereophonics, and alternative dance noisemaker Caribou. So that's a very odd mix. They I've never heard apparently... uh, three of those tracks. I've never heard. I've, I, I know obviously yeah. um, Enya and um, the Beach Boys. The other three are a mystery to me. I like Orinoco Flow actually. I say like I can I can put up with it, but it would make me want to go back to sleep not because it's yes. boring but because it's incredibly yes. relaxing yes. you know this is the problem now this is surely the bedtime play this is surely not the getting up <laughs> bad guy by Billie eilish i find to be extremely creepy um the roundness of the bass is very insistent but not unpleasant like being woken up by a cat headbutting you for strokes this is now this is what i call music journalism actually that is superb well done kate solomon who came up with that sentence um they they seem to um they seem to sort of like i don't know it seems to be stuff that's quite soft actually i mean whether or what i need to wake me up depends really i must admit my my university housemate used to very much favor thumping dance which was unusual considering and unfortunate considering they had the room next door to mine so that was that was slow (laughs) unideal i must admit i i, I know I, I often seem to seem to go on about this on, and, and pick things on the podcast quite a lot but i do genuinely enjoy um, lauren laverne's breakfast show on six music because she seems to pick a really good mix of songs she starts at half seven and finishes at half ten and she always picks a sort of a big classic tune to start to start the uh, start the show and it's usually something quite upbeat i think it was it's quite often somebody like new order and that usually kind of gets me in the mood to sort of get the get the, the day going the other day she played a song which you know i think i could listen to this song every day now Ooh. i think it might she might have found me my yeah. waking up in the morning song which is get in the car by the uh, by the breeders which was all wait in the car i think it's called i will i will double check that but basically it starts with rather grungy guitar um sort of battering drums and kim deal it's called wait in the car kim deal repeatedly sort of shouting good morning and i have to say that is how i would like to start my day with kim deal shouting from the from the breeders and the pixies general alt rock legend kim deal shouting good morning at me repeatedly i think plus carl make me think oh, yes it's suitable isn't it you've got school run you've got work run i think wait in the car by the breezers and it's not very long either is possibly my ultimate wake-up call gosh i think um most pop songs would drive me mad after a while it would become mm. a kind of groundhog day thing but um I, I was thinking too if i had to have one song to mm. wake me up for the rest of my life and i I, I thought, well, like, you know, it had to be a pop song. I was going to have Casta Diva, and then I was thinking of uh, Kirita Kunawa singing Let the Bright Seraphim, because that's quite uplifting. But I thought, that no, is no, quite I'll... sweet, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I thought, I've chosen a pop single, um, and it's one that's mentioned in that Guardian article. Let every day start with the Beach Boys and Good Vibrations. Yeah, so I can cope with that. Again. I haven't tired of it in over 50 years, so I think I can wake up to it every day until I breathe my last absolutely so and notice how neither of us went for wake up boo by the Bradleys, <laughs> which will probably drive me to kill after about a week i think yeah that's that's the trouble i mean one thinks well that'd be good fun but then if you thought well i've got to listen to that for 50 years every day 365 days for 50 years <laughs> I mean, there, are, there aren't many songs that would withstand that battering uh, are there really it would be like that sort of thing they do at places like guantanamo bay where they oh, yes. play music incessantly to drive people to confess the, the, the barn the dinosaur 
theme was a pop- yeah, Metallica that's... and Barney the Dinosaur were, were popular on that. And, and I, but in a dim and distant past, I've criticised and the most hate mail I ever got on this podcast was when I repeatedly criticised Lars Ulrich from Metallica. And can I just say I'm not in the least bit sorry about that? But um, if I had to pick between Metallica and Barney the Dinosaur, I would pick the latter. <laughs> <laughs> I had no regret. Well, let us say thanks very much for listening once again. It's good to have you there. My apologies to any Metallica fans. But anyway, uh, yes, thank you, everybody, for sticking with us. Thanks to Hilly and Rona for production help. As always. And, oh, Jules, a superb new track with um, Radiohead Connection. Yes, indeed. And this, uh, having said this to you, you very much enjoyed it. We very talked much. previously, I think, on the podcast about changing our minds on things. Yes. And I may be helping you to to, you are. to to turn the tank around as far as your radiohead opposition is concerned. Which, not that I'm saying everybody has to like what I like, but I'm delighted yeah. that you enjoyed this because I think it's brilliant. Um, it's, it's recorded by somebody called EOB, which with not a lot of detection, you can work out, is Ed O'Brien of Radiohead. Um, I've, I've, he's often seen as a bit of a sort of a sideman in Radiohead, really, and that Tom York, the singer, is obviously a main sort of songwriter is known by by everybody now i think pretty much even johnny greenwood the lead guitarist has received sort of notices and is quite prominent in recent years as as a composer and soundtrack composer particularly in his own right he did a prom last year he was the bbc concert orchestra's um composer in residence for a while um he did the there will be blood soundtrack he does quite a lot of thomas paul anderson films in general so he's quite well known um but but ed o'brien less so he's always been a sort of a rhythm guitarist if you see what i mean Mm. um this on, on this evidence he may well I look forward to a good solo career, I think. And actually, the drummer from Radiohead, Phil Selway, has done um, a solo work that's also very good as well. So they're just a very talented group of people, I think. But weirdly, it does sound like Radiohead, I think. And his vocals sound a little bit Tom York-esque in that they are quite high. But there's just a, a, a looseness to this and a kind of a wandering about to it, that, but, but still within sort of reasonable kind of parameters that makes me think of, of later period Radiohead and how much I like later period Radiohead and I think this is this is just a really compelling I don't want to say funky because that's such a cliche but it's got really nice movement to it I think so, so see how you get on with this this is Shangri-La by EOB
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs>